Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. The interview you're about to hear is with Giacomo Odero, who was born in the mid-1920s and who witnessed the transformation of the Barolo area in the aftermath of World War II up and through to the current day. Giacomo's interview is translated by Isabella Odero, who is Giacomo's granddaughter and who has interviewed herself on this program back in episode 100, if you'd like to hear that as well. One of the aspects that Giacomo Odero mentions in the upcoming interview is the influence of the Italian wine critic Luigi Veronelli on the push for single vineyard labeling of Barolo. And although crew names like Canubi were found on very ancient bottles of Barolo, it was only in the second half of the 20th century that labeling Barolo as a single vineyard wine became a commonplace in the wider zone. In episode 417 of I'll Drink to That, I spoke to Alessandro Masnaghetti, and he used to work for Luigi Veronelli. And what I asked Alessandro was to tell me about Veronelli's influence on the development in the 20th century of single vineyard Barolo. Here's what Alessandro Masnaghetti had to say in that interview. This is for sure. Veronelli was oh, really, really, really hard about this. For, for him, the, the vineyard was the uh, was most important thing. I've never discussed with him about this, but I think because he saw in this evolution, so in this putting the name of the vineyard on the label, a way for the small producer to to be more respected or to have the respect that they didn't have in the past. And for Luigi was very important. This was a, a way for him to say, come on, people, you need to be respected. There is a, many producers that were born in the 50s can tell you that in the 70s, uh, when everybody went to the Fiat industries in Torino to make a living, uh, and they were remaining in the hillside, and they went to the discotheque on Saturday, and no girl wanted to dance with them. <laughs> because, because they were working not in the field, but they were working in the vineyards. And, oh my God, you're not, <laughs> yeah, you're not a good choice. <laughs> and now things are different. 
fortunately, and maybe because of Luigi Veronelli, choice. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Giacomo Odero on the show today from the Poderi Odero in La Mora in the Piemonte. Hello, sir. How are you? Quindi potrei dire sto abbastanza bene, quella abbastanza con l'accento. He is doing quite well. And so you were born in 1926. He was born in 1926 and uh, he started to go working in the vineyards with his family when he was 15 years old. So he has 75 harvests on his shoulders. And what were the first harvests like? What were your first experiences in the vineyard? When he first started to go in the vineyards to help with the harvest, his responsibility, his duty was to pick the single berries that uh, they were lost on the soil. Because at the time, completely different than today, they could not waste anything. The wine business didn't exist at all at the time. The international markets didn't exist. So they really put all their efforts in keeping everything they had and satisfied the local request, which was small. We are talking about a very different reality. He remembers when his grandfather, used to tell him about his experiences in 1878 when he first started to go to Milano, all the way to Milano, to present the wine and started to sell the Barolo, mainly in Demijons. So the wine was not bottled at the time, but they used to sell in Damigiane, Demijons. And so his grandfather started at the time. The market was local, so talking about northern part of Italy. His uh, grandfather used to tell him that some years later they presented the wine in London for the very first time, so uh, outside of the borders of Italy. So if he thinks of these old memories, uh, he sees how many steps uh, towards quality the whole area did in these years. Now, uh, you know, the Lange area is part of uh, UNESCO World Heritage since uh, 2014. So if he looks uh, back, he can see how many single small efforts, one after the other, the previous generations did. What is the winery that you recall as a child when you were in the winery facility? What was it like at that time? Era la prima stanza e la seconda cantina di fianco. La prima stanza era quella dove c'era una specie di museo. When he was a little child, of course, the winery was much, much smaller. And we had only one room. And this room was built by his grandfather, whose name is Giacomo, like his name. So in the second half of 1800, he started to vinificate. During uh, 1910, so under his father, 
they um, enlarged with a second room, which is now where we have the museum of the old uh, instruments. But this was a very small room, and this was enough. This was uh, good enough to complete the whole production, to have the whole production of the time. Only after the Second World War, so starting from 1945, they built the second part, which is larger and is still used today. And uh, you can notice the difference, because uh, the very first room, the oldest, and the second, they were built uh, in a period of peace. And you can see even from the walls, because there's a harmony there. Uh, the materials they used, they were better and better looking, of a better quality. The second room, the one built after the Second World War, um, is not so pretty, honestly. It's very, very, very simple. And this is a memory of uh, hard times. It was started by his father and then completed by him and his brother when his father passed away. So very simple, just uh, cement on top. But, uh, of course, we have to respect uh, every time, every period and uh, all the difficulties. In your childhood, what was Lamora like as a place? Aveva tanti abitanti come adesso, forse qualcuno di più perché le nostre When he was young, Lamora probably was more populated than it is today because uh, with the years, many people they left the country areas and they moved to larger cities. So he remembers then when he was a child, Lamora counted about 5000 people living there now it's about 3000 of course he's saying that uh, thanks to the great improvements made by the viticulture the wealthiness the level of life has increased so much compared to the past he remembers very well when he was a child, living here, there was a family of people working also for his family. During uh, the Second World War, or right after the Second World War, uh, they decided to move to U.S. And now the family, they still live there in New Jersey. Because, of course, uh, we were in a very difficult moment, uh, very poor times. So they left, and he remembers very well this image of the whole family living in the country, here in the courtyard. And uh, many, many years after, in 1986, when he was uh, president of a delegation of producers, he went to visit New York and New Jersey. They were presenting the wines of the region, and he went to see again the family. Uh, when he traveled to see this family, he was traveling with one of their brothers who decided at that time to stay in Italy, so he grew up in Italy. And when uh, they met all together, the family who moved uh, in the US, of course they missed a lot the Italian food, but also this man, the brother, was so surprised to see uh, on one hand the very free life that characterized the American way of life, but also the houses, they were built in uh, wood. You know, we have the houses in concrete and stone. So he, he said, okay, maybe it was better to stay in Italy. I don't know. I'm not sure they made uh, the good decision. 
in Piedmontese dialect, this man said, if I give a kick to this house, this house falls down. Come no, back to Italy. Uh, I have a house which is much stronger. And this facility here where we're at today in Santa Maria, this was originally a school? Era nella casa sotto che allora era di un unico proprietario che era un... In the past, uh, the family had two brothers. One took this house, the other one took the house which is next door, so three minutes walking, and that one was the school, the primary school. So all the children who were born in the area, they attended the school in the house in front of ours. So at the time, each generation needed to contribute to the building of the house. And when a member of the family used to get married, they used to build a new part of the house to continue to enlarge the original structure. So the first area, this was built more than 250 years ago. And then little by little, every single member of the family who got married built two rooms, one on top of the other, and they used to live all together. So this house became little and little longer. The most recent part was built 90 years ago when his father got married with his mother. So still today, the responsibility of the members of the family is to continue to build, continue to improve, continue to expand a little bit. And uh, this is what he did with his brother. He built a new part of the winery. It was not uh, anymore a house, but a winery. This is what my mother and uh, my aunt Christina did. They added a new section of the winery. And of course, his grandchildren, they have the same uh, responsibility for the future. In the past, it was possible also to buy many vineyards. This is what he mainly did in his life, to expand buying important vineyards in the Barolo di Osigi area. And so post the war, the situation was probably that people were leaving the countryside and that things were a little more difficult. Subito finita la guerra... La nostra viticoltura era in grave ambascie, cioè era in grosse difficoltà, sia perché in Italia mancavano... After the Second World War, um, it was a very tough uh, moment for the area for many reasons. But also the viticulture, the local viticulture was suffering a lot because no laws existed to protect, to define the rules, but also to protect the production, especially of the small farmers, against any kind of sophistication of the wine. Um, so the companies, they benefit the most. They were larger companies, but the, the small farmers, they were suffering a lot. So that's why many families, they took the decision to abandon this area because they were uh, encountering suffering, many difficulties. But it was thanks to his generation to the people who stayed in, in the area, who believed in the area, in the potentials of the territory, that uh, with the years, with many efforts, but it was uh, a union of efforts, that they were able to cooperate and to establish, to create, to write the DOC first and the DOCG after, the legislation laws, the disciplinaries, to protect our production, to protect the typical uh, wines of the area and he remembers the great help he had 
with uh, some other producers, majors of the area. He was at the time major of uh, the town of La Morra. He was the mayor. He was the mayor, yeah. And uh, he cooperated with uh, Rinaldi. He was mayor of Barolo. Giovanni Battista Rinaldi, so the father of uh, Citrico. He was mayor in Barolo, together with uh, Renato Ratti, Arnaldo Rivera in Castiglione Falletto, Giovanni Gaia in Barbaresco, sì. ehm, Negro. Eh, Negro in... Giovanni, nella zo- quello è venuto successivamente nella zona del Roero, Giovanni Negro. Ed è... It was a long period that lasted more than 30 years, started in the 60s, ended just at the beginning of 2000, and this was the moment when all together they built the laws to protect the wines. First, Barolo and Barbaresco, then the disciplinaries of Dolcetto d'Alba, Barbera d'Alba, Nebbiolo d'Alba, Lange Nebbiolo, and also Roero, Roero Arneis, and also Moscato Dusty, which is in a great percentage produced here in our hills in the Lange. So Moscato Dusty, DOC, and then DOCG, and Asti Spumante. He remembers that at the time they used to work all together, their priority was to let the other people, the other farmers, understand that they had to focus not so much on the quantity but on the quality. So produce less, but produce better. This was their motto at the time. So, of course, with difficulties at the beginning, but uh, all these people in different ways, they promoted this uh, principle. So many times they used to meet here in this room where we are now, together with Rivera, with Rinaldi, with many other producers, to discuss and to convince other people, other farmers, to declare their production. This may look a very simple thing now, but at the time, the people, they might think that uh, it was uh, just a way to pay more taxes. So some people, they didn't want at the beginning. They had to convince them to register their vineyards in the Albo dei Vigneti. Albo dei Vigneti means list of the vineyards, and this is fundamental because now we have the control of all the production of the area. All the vineyards, they are listed in this big register, and the production is controlled. And now, here we are. The people of his generation, the people who decided to stay and not to go away after the Second World War, to go away was also sometimes an easier decision because to stay here meant that you needed to work harder. Um, They really saved our viticulture because without their help, the vineyards, they, they would be completely lost. And many people of his age, his generation, friends, who initially left the area and went maybe to work in other farms and wineries in Australia, in Brazil, in California, because there was emigration at the time. After some years, they realized what was happening here and they came back. One of them was also Renato Ratti, who he moved first to Brazil, but then immediately realized and he came back and started to uh, work at his uh, own family winery and, uh, as we know, to write the topography 
of the vineyards of the area. Hey, it's Levy, and I just want to pause the interview here for a moment to highlight something that Giacomo Odero just said. He explained that Renato Ratti moved away from Italy briefly, landing in Brazil, before later deciding to return to the Piemonte and make that his home. And this is notable because of how significant Ratti became for the wines of the area. When I asked author Victor Hazan about Ratti in episode 431, this is what he told me. Renato Ratti was a hero of yours as well, right? Not just my hero, but my mentor. Renato Ratti was the head of the Enological Institute in Alba, and he had a wine estate of his own. And this was the area where the greatest of the Italian red grapes is grown, Nebbiolo, where the first Italian red wine to be put into a glass bottle with a when the vineyard name was produced. And uh, Renato Ratti was proud of his heritage, but unfortunately he died of cancer very young. And to specifically note why Ratti was so important, let me share with you what Michael Garner said in episode 420. Michael Garner is the author of the book Barolo, Tar, and Roses. You'd probably started to see in significant number, people doing single vineyard Barolo by that time. Yeah, absolutely. The crew was the thing. Everyone claims to have done it first. That's what they're like. Probably Pronotto were certainly amongst the first, but there again, Vietti were close as well, and a whole number of others. But yes, it was an idea that had taken off by then. And I I think a lot of that was to do with Renato Ratti, who uh, I also met on numerous occasions and and thought the world of Renato Ratti was a wonderful guy. In fact, um, we dedicated the book to him, which was um, because he died, I think, just before it was published, sadly. But he was a great uh, modernizer. Uh, and I think perhaps doesn't these days get the recognition that he deserves what he did. Um, He was probably the first guy to map out the great areas of Barolo, which everyone knew were there and everyone acknowledged, Um, but he was the first to say, look, you know, this is a concept we can build on and we need to build on it, just as we need to improve our wines. You can understand from these comments why Ratti was so pivotal. He drew the map of vineyards that would become the basis of a whole vineyard system in the Piemonte, and the names of the crews that he outlined would be placed on bottle labels, changing how we often think about Barolo today. Also, Ratti influenced a generation of prominent wine writers, including Victor Hazan and Michael Garner. And what Giacomo Odero is saying in his interview is that all of that almost didn't happen. If Renato Ratti had decided to stay in Brazil, we would think of Borello differently today. And that's really what Giacomo is emphasizing here, how important it was for people to work and live in the Piemonte. We'll return to the interview with Giacomo Odero to learn more about how Giacomo's own father influenced his decision-making in this regard right after this message from a sponsor. I talk to winemakers all the time. And something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after 
a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T to learn more. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. What was your father like in general? What was his personality? Mio padre era un uomo molto serio, molto onesto, molto timido. His father was um, a very serious man, very honest and very humble. He says also very shy. He had some difficulties during his life, especially during the Second World War, but after the Second World War, to cooperate with uh, other people uh, in the vineyards or in the production of wine at the time, because, again, there were no legislation, no protection, so many people, also some negative um, negative characters, they were abusing their power and not respecting uh, the small farmers' work. So, because he was a shy person, he always told them about the difficulties he had in the relationship with uh, these personalities. Uh, Unfortunately, he died at the age of 58, and my grandfather was 22. Luigi was 19, and from that moment, they took the decision to continue the winery themselves. And he thinks that uh, also, because he passed away so young, gave them the strength to stay with their mother, to stay here in La Mora, to continue in the memory of uh, their father. It really sounds like a lot of what happened for you next was driven on a personal level by the desire to see the cooperation and the legislation to get the DOC to protect the small farmers and at the same time to stay in the place. Those were driven by the personal history. Certainly the memory of his father was the leading principle that guided him through the years for the battle of legislation, of more control, of more seriousness in the area. Because his father told him so many times, there are people, they say they produce Barolo, they don't even know what Barolo is. So they were abusing, using the name in the wrong way. They were putting in the name of Barolo other grapes, and they don't even know where Barolo comes from. So he 
this was a really uh, strong feeling he had. And he pursued this battle not only for Odero Winery. He really wanted also the other people, the ones that they maybe didn't have a strong voice, to have this opportunity, to have this uh, control and possibilities to do their own uh, job and to start uh, their own production. So many families, they had difficulties because they used to work all year long, but the grapes, they were paid very, very little. So... The small farmers, they were represented the weakest point of the chain. It was so important altogether to establish this legislation against frauds, also to protect these small productions, because the larger companies, they used to, at the time, still blend Nebbiolo with wines coming from southern part of Italy, mainly from Puglia that used to happen. So it was so important to establish a law to avoid these kind of frauds. So when you were a boy, what vineyard holdings did Odero control? Quando ero giovane c'erano qui il Bricco Chiesa, che abbiamo qui vicino attorno a casa, chiamato così perché c'è la Chiesa della Borgata. During his childhood, the main properties, they were all located in Santa Maria and La Morra area so they were all different parcels but located uh, all around the house first of all Brico Chiesa which is the vineyard close to the winery Brico Chiesa is named after the church of Santa Maria then Brico San Biagio Bettolotti which are all areas in Santa Maria and also Le Rue Vineyard which is a beautiful uh, position in mid part of the hill of La Morra Le Rue means Le Querce the oak trees, a beautiful south position. And uh, his family uh, started to buy these uh, first vineyards little by little from a Jewish family who used to live in Kerasco, so close to La Morra. They were one of the major landowners in the area and they started uh, during that time to fragment their property and sell these parcels to many different uh, local families, to many different farmers. After the Second World War, my grandfather Giacomo and his brother, Luigi, they decided, because they had on their property, it was mainly La Morra, they decided they wanted to look for vineyards located in the main villages of the Barolo area. So, Barolo village, Monforte d'Alba village, Castiglione Falletto, and Serralunga. So, they wanted to purchase some of the most historical vineyards, some of the best parcels in these different areas. And this is what they did uh, with all the money they could put aside during their life. So, we had uh, Rocche di Castiglione, Vigna Rionda, Mondoca in Bussia, in Monforte d'Alba. Little by little they expanded. So the original property was La Morra and then with the years they wanted to see the different terroirs. You made some very good vineyard purchases and key vineyards. What guided you at that time? Io facevo il farmacista in Alba. 
perché dobbiamo, non dobbiamo dimenticare che i, i farmacisti sono coloro che praticamente hanno tenuto a battesimo. When he was young at university, he chose to study pharmacist. He became a pharmacist. So he was working in, um, in Alba as a pharmacist and he wants to, to tell that uh, the pharmacists in the area, they all played a very important role for the wines. There are many of them who are quite famous for the help they gave to the wine region, also like Cappellano or the pharmacist of Monforte. So he was not involved in the everyday work at the winery because his brother Luigi was the one who was working in the fields, in the vineyards. But it was mainly thanks also to his activity as a pharmacist in Alba that they were able with the years to put some money aside and select the vineyards to buy. At the time, uh, many, many families, they had uh, the children who left and they moved to Alba to work for Ferrero or to Torino to work for Fiat. So parents, they were maybe too old to take care of, of the vineyards and they were more interested in selling the properties. And this is what Luigi and Giacomo did with the years. They talked to these families and they selected these important parcels. They were not looking for large amount of land, for large parcels, but they were looking for good positions. And uh, at the time, uh, the hills, they didn't look like today. They were not all planted with vineyards, but uh, the vineyards that were there, they really were important vineyards with important position. So it was an easier job because they could really select those small parcels that were very good. And um, first with Brunate in La Mora, um, they wanted to have differences in the soil composition, in the position. So they went to Castiglione Falletto, they went to Serra Lunga d'Alba, looking for the best sun exposure, the best sori in Piedmontese dialect. I think it's unusual to do multi-communal at the time. It seems historically that a lot of people stayed in one sort of general region with a few exceptions like Vietti and yourself. So were there challenges to working, harvesting and maintaining vineyards in multiple communes at the time when the roads and the equipment was in a different state? Cioè un tempo si diceva che i contadini stessi, di anche di una, di una stessa zona, vi coltivavano i vigneti in parti diverse per... The principal rule when buying parcels and working vineyards, all the farmers, they have this rule, is not to have one unique plot in one position, but in different areas of one hill and the other, also to avoid hail, so that you could save at least one parcel and protect at least part of your production. This is also a very simple reason, but this is at the basis of why the properties in the local area are so fragmented. They extended this principle to multiple communes. 
they were looking for the best sorees, the best sunny exposures. And they didn't care much if they were only in La Mora, so comfortable and close to the winery, but also in Saralunga, so different areas, with, of course, many more difficulties than the one we have today. To go there, they took longer time, they needed more people to work, of course. So they were obliged to move with the small roads we had from La Morra to Barolo to Castiglione Falletto. But this was a challenge they wanted to have to protect their production, to have less damage from hail, to have a different, more diverse expression of soil and exposure. Of course, today, with a little bit more mechanization with the tractors, it's much easier to manage. The first acquisition outside of a the first vineyards that they already owned in La Morra was Brunate in 1968. This happened not for a specific plan, but because they had the opportunity. He was mayor in La Morra and he found the opportunity of a man he wanted to sell. So many times these opportunities came to them. The year after, they decided to expand it more and they bought Rocche in Castiglione Falletto, the vineyard Rocche di Castiglione. And the year after, Tenuta Para, which is here in Santa Maria, that one was a large acquisition for the family because the previous owner asked them uh, the price of 10 millions of ancient lira which at the time was a lot of money. And they were about to say, okay, no, we can't afford this. But their mother, she was the one who encouraged them, who pushed them to continue, uh, not to be afraid. And so they made many debts and um, they bought Tenute Para, which is, by the way, where uh, the winery Luigi Vignetutero is now located. And uh, after that acquisition, which was a quite large property, uh, it took them some years to uh, recover from the debts. And then in the mid of the 1970s, they started again with the acquisition of the property of Vignolo Lutati, which is a famous agronomist from Castiglione Falletto. And these properties, the ones we bought, were Brunella, Villero and Fiasco in Castiglione Falletto. In the same year, Rivera from Arnaldo Rivera, which is now uh, the vineyard under the castle of Castiglione Falletto, uh, Menzione Geografica Scarrone, not anymore Rivera, but at the time the name was Rivera di Castiglione. And beginning of 1980s, Mondoca in Bussia, and after Vigna Rionda, Serra Lunga d'Alba. So the single crew bottlings began for Prodario Odero in 1982. But I'm realizing now from what you're saying that when I had the 1958 Prodario Odero, that was all Lamora fruit. Yeah, exactly. So it wouldn't have had Valero, Rionda, Brunate in it, even though that was my assumption when I drank it. And then in the 60s, it would have been mostly Lamora fruit still but with Brunate in it. In the 68 with Brunate, 
eh, of course Brico Chiesa, Brico San Biagio, eh, Leru Rogeri, mid part of eh, la morra, all para, tenuta para, brunate and then rocche di Castiglione. Rocche di Castiglione, same year of brunate, so 1968. Ok. So that's really interesting to me, actually, because it's actually totally changing my understanding of the older Odero wines. Because I really like the wines from the 60s, and I like the wines from the 70s too, but I'm understanding them differently now. Yeah, so the 50s and the 60s, they were uh, fruits blended together, all parcels, Santa Maria and La Mora. They were co-ferments. It wasn't that they were vinified separately and then blended It was a blend of grapes, blend of, grapes. of fruits during the harvest time, yes. So then Rionda was essentially one of the last purchases. Yes, and that happened beginning of the 80s. The only vineyards that we are not uh, owning anymore at the moment are Rivera, which is now Scarrone, and this is property of uh, Vigneti Luigi Odero, Tenuta Parà is Vigneti Luigi Odero, Uh, Bettolotti, a part of Villero, which was divided, a part of Vignarionda, which was divided. So we kept Bussia, Vignamondoca, Rocche di Castiglione, Castrina, Capalot, in queste ultime cose. Mm. And the Le Santa Maria and Brunate, yeah. So the decision was made in 1982 at Odero to bottle the cruise separately, or at least some of the cruise. And What was the decision making at that time? What were the thoughts? Qui è stato un discorso che arriva da lontano. Mio padre, ad esempio. It is a long story. It starts with uh, his father, uh, Giacomo and Luigi's father. Uh, he was convinced and he taught them all his life about the beauty and integrity of Barolo Classico. His philosophy was really to choose uh, even only some rows of some vineyards that we know at the time they were mainly located in La Morra, uh, but with different characteristics. So um, some which were more vocated to give the pleasantness, some with more tannins, so to give more depth on the palates. Blended together, it was a blend of fruits back then, He believed this was the best expression of Barolo. For him, there was no alternative. And this is what uh, he gave as an example and uh, as teaching to uh, his uh, children. So Giacomo and Luigi, they always produced only one Barolo following their father example. And this was the Barolo Classico, which still today, for my family, still today is the most important wine. So only recently, and this happened the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, they started to think about the possibility to keep some grapes aside, some specific grapes coming from only one parcel. After the acquisition of Rocche di Castiglione in the end of the 60s, They always blended this grape together with the vineyards in La Morra. And uh, only in 1982, Luigi, finally, with a very good year, like 1982, decided to produce Rocche di Castiglione as a single vineyard. But 
he says that they were skeptical. They were not 100% convinced, fully convinced about this decision, and they wanted to test also their customers, the reaction of their customers. Decision was made also under the influence of one of the most important Italian journalists for wine and food, which is Veronelli. He really spent a lot of energies in promoting the territory and the concept of cruise. So, because they trusted his opinion a lot, they wanted to experiment. And the vineyard, which was considered the most complete, the most balanced, was Rocche di Castiglione. So they started with this. Some years later, they started to add more vineyards as a single vineyard. These were Vigna Mondo Cabussia and Vigna Rionda. But they always put the major efforts in the Barolo Classico. So they never forgot their father's uh, example. They agreed with him. They uh, spent uh, all their life producing Barolo Classico. So this is the wine of their heart, of uh, his heart now. Even when blending the grapes together to produce the Barolo Classico, they knew a little bit uh, the geology, the differences in the soil, and so the ability of specific vineyards to offer certain characteristics. But of course, with the crew philosophy, with the different uh, uh, management of uh, vinification, keeping the grapes separate, having a separate vinification, this aspect was so accentuated. So he was so fascinated, so curious, so surprised to finally see, to finally give life to the ideas they had. And they learned a lot because... Uh, the idea behind the Barolo Classico is to offer drinkability, to offer balance, harmony. When you choose to express the single vineyard, you have to understand the specific vineyard, the specific personality, and you have to wait for them. They are not ready when you release. Vignarionda needs 20 years, Brunate a little bit less, Rocche di Castiglione maybe 10. So you have to accept to represent uh, the wines like they are a human being, like they have uh, their own uh, soul, their own identity. Were there specific characteristics that you, you realized in the glass regarding the cruise? Sometimes, uh, especially with Brunate, which is one uh, he likes a lot because he loves the flowery aromatics. He loves the herbs and the specific uh, aromatics of this vineyard, which is high elevation, fresh, so has these uh, fresh cut herbs, nose. It's easier for him to feel them directly, straight away, when he tastes the wine. Of course, Vigna Rionda, darker nose. He says darker because uh, it's uh, more long-lasting, more austere, and has different kinds of uh, aromatics, uh, the earthiness, uh, less uh, pretty and flowery. Vignarionda can be compared like a racehorse. When it's young, uh, he needs to learn how to walk, but then he runs. But uh, truly speaking, 
the wine that makes uh, him feel at home still today is the Barolo Classico. When he puts his nose in the glass, he feels the memory of his past. It's so intriguing for him to see that from one single variety in a Biolo, blend of different vineyards, different rows of the same hill but uh, different sun exposure, you have so many different expressions but very well integrated. And this sensation of balance is something he recognizes immediately. Uh, because it belongs to his uh, childhood, belongs to his story, his personal life. So at that time with your brother, what decisions did you make about the winery? First of all, when they started, when their father died, and they had to manage the winery, what they tried to establish was a where to place their production, especially because their father was so shy, not so good, not so good with the relationship. He was not a very talkative man. Uh, he didn't have uh, any contacts. He didn't leave them any market open. So if they wanted to expand, to find the vineyard, and which was their dream, they had first to build a system to sell the wine and to place regularly the wine. And they were lucky enough to start working with a company which at the time was based in Milano. The name is Sutti, now not existing anymore, but it was a big distributor. And they worked for many years with this company which started to place the Barolo wine from Sicily to Trentino Alto Adige, mainly Lombardia, but everywhere in Italy. At the time, few producers could have such a good representation. And that's why many of their old battles are so well known in the whole country. And many restaurants in their cellars still have battles from the 50s, from the beginning of the 60s. Because we were quite strong thanks to this company. Unfortunately, it happened that the father, who was the owner of the company, died. And uh, so for, again, for some years, three to five years, we had uh, no uh, representation in, in Italy. And so this was quite a hard time. Then they started to sell to uh, export markets, mainly in Europe and uh, in the 80s in the U.S., Talking about the philosophy of production, they have always been very traditional because this was what they knew. This was what they learned from their father and this is what they learned to do. They wanted to represent Barolo both with the positive and with the negative aspects. Somebody may think that the tannins of Nebbiolo, the tannins of especially certain Barolos, are too strong, too tough, too astringent when they are young wines. And some people may consider these uh, bad characteristics. They didn't care. They didn't care because this was the wine that uh, was typical for them, that was uh, uh, traditional and expressed the identity of our region. So they never changed the style. They were not attracted by selling more wine uh, to export markets. 
they were not influenced by technicians of a different style. Uh, in the 90s, they started the cooperation for the very first time, so quite late, with a consultant, which is a quite famous consultant in Italy. The name is Donato Lanati. Up to 1990s, no consultant. So all the wines, they were made by Luigi, by my grandfather, who was behind every decision, even if he was not involved in the single operations. Of course... Uh, Mr. Lanati didn't teach them how to make wine because it's 100 years that uh, the family makes wine. Of course, he had a more scientific knowledge, great palate, he tasted so many good wines from different areas. So it was like a, a wave of freshness, especially because we have to consider that when it started, they both were not so young anymore, both Giacomo and Luigi. But what my grandfather cares the most is that especially in those years, in the 90s, with so many producers, so many uh, winemakers, uh, they started to change their winemaking style. They started to produce more modern Barolos. Donato Lanati understood our will to maintain tradition and never alterated the, the decision, the family wanted. And then, of course, when my aunt started to join the company and Luca Veglio, we stopped with the consultant. And this is a different story. What have been the key vintages that you remember now that you look back over your life? He remembers very well the very bad year, the area I had, the whole area I had in 1972 was a disaster. <laughs> he said it was a annata grama. Grama is a Piedmontese word that means bad, cattiva, ugly, very bad. They really didn't have the quality and all the producers of the whole area, the whole region, they agreed not to produce even a single bottle of 72 Barolo because they didn't want the name Barolo associated with a low quality. To him, this is important here, a personal satisfaction, because he saw the union of will of the people, they finally realized that uh, the important thing was not to produce the wine, was to produce a good wine. The important thing is to protect the name Barolo, to protect the quality of Barolo. And all, everybody agreed with this spontaneously. So for him, this was a, a, a success, a personal satisfaction. Another vintage uh, whose memory is very vivid, still very alive to him, is 1959. This is the year where my aunt was born, and she was born in the middle of the harvest, and everybody was expecting a boy. Uh, Luigi didn't have uh, any child at that time. Uh, my grandfather already had uh, one daughter, my mother, and they were looking for a boy, finally a boy in the family. And then Christina, she, uh, she arrived in the middle of the harvest and she was a girl. And so when he came back home and told uh, Luigi that she was another girl, they looked to each other and they were quite worried. Because, of course, at the time in the countries in the fields, not to have boys was a problem. 
was considered a quite a big problem for the future, and Luigi didn't have children at the time. So they were a little bit concerned, to put it in a, in a gentle way. But this is so significant to him today because uh, his daughters, so my mother and my aunt, demonstrated to him that he was wrong because they became uh, owners of the estate many years after, of course, and they are doing a good job. And Christina, she studied agronomic sciences, so she's a girl, but she was the one who followed his path. And she's taking care of the production since uh, 1996-1997. So he remembers still very well the 1959 vintage for this reason. So when you were the mayor of Lamora, what were some of the other key concerns of the era? What were some of the things that were very important at that time besides the formation of the DOC? Le questioni erano molte. Nel 1965... There were so many issues at the time, of course, but fundamental, most important, uh, was that uh, all the Lange, all the Lange, not only Barolo, but the Lange around Alba, the whole area was uh, lacking water. We didn't have the aqueduct, we didn't have the system to bring water to the houses, to the villages, so that when a tourist or where a guest used to come to the families, it was much easier to offer him a glass of wine than a glass of water, because water was very precious. Without water, you cannot improve agriculture, you cannot have a good viticulture, and you cannot make wine, you cannot clean the tanks. So it was a priority number one. And during his career as a mayor, they built a huge system from the Alps. It's more than 600 kilometers. When he went to speak with the people from the mountains, the mayors of the villages where the system was about to start, all the people, they were so surprised that the winemakers, they were so interested in water and they wanted to be paid in wine in exchange of water. So I can imagine that the conditions of sanitation in the winery would have been made easier by more access to water. Of course, without water, it was impossible to think to expand the wineries. Without water, to clean the barrels, to have uh, good wines with no bad aromas. Uh, from that moment, the wineries were able to develop, to uh, increase their spaces, and that's really something that happened in the second half of the 20th century? Yes. Started uh, in 1970 and ended in 1991. So it took uh, quite a long time to complete the whole construction. Did other areas of the Piemonte, like the Alto Piemonte, did they have different sources of water? Like Gatanara, Gamme, because it seems like there was big production centers there, and I was wondering if maybe it had to do with more access to water. L'importante è che qui non c'era, era solo l'acqua piovana. 
probably the area of the highest part of Piedmont, uh, because it is closer, much closer than we are to the mountains, they had better solutions to retrieve water. And many years before we did. In the Lange, the only provision of water they had before this system was the water from the rain. Every house had a tank to keep the water from rain. But of course, uh, this was not practical at all. So at the time, it really looked like a dream to have uh, such a developed and long system of bringing water to even the smallest hamlets. But people like my grandfather and other people, other authorities also, especially mayors of the villages, they believed in this dream. And now this has come reality. As a boy, Giacomo Odero was given the job to search out, find, and save the Nebbiolo grapes that otherwise would have been lost. Thank you very much for being here today. Noi siamo molto onorati della sua visita. He is honored to have you here at our house and thank you so much for this opportunity you gave us. He says that uh, the communication of the values is fundamental, is so important, so precious. Giacomo Odero of Poderi Odero in Barolo. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. I would like to thank the Vira family of Barolo who helped make this interview happen. Thank you. Posso aggiungere ancora qualcosa di questa casa che è rimasto uguale a come era prima e questi piccoli disegni sono la ingenuità dei The structure of the house stayed the same. Also the rooms, the internal organization of the space, the rooms and the decoration of the ceilings. Every room is uh, painted in a different way and he loves, he is so attached to the memories because uh, before the Second World War uh, they painted all the ceilings with images of the vineyards, of the hamlets, with the little church. So for him is uh, he's uh, very proud of uh, keeping this memory in every single room still today. <laughs>